Hello, and thank you for tuning in to the Encouragement Expert Podcast. We're glad you're joining us today. Let's join Pastor Wes Doffenbaugh as he speaks on the versatility of love. Praise the Lord. It's a true delight to be with each one of you. I love you. God bless you. Let's say a prayer together. Father, we love your word. We want your Holy Spirit to teach us your word so that we can practice it and live under the influence of your Holy Spirit constantly. That's our prayer. We pray you'll use this message to that end for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. I'm speaking on the subject, the versatility of love. Now, in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus described the end times, and he said, because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved, Matthew 24, 12, and 13. Now, the word for wickedness is often translated as lawlessness, and I believe we're living in a time that surely qualifies for what Jesus was talking about. Uh, wickedness and lawlessness have just increased greatly and continue to increase. Even the basic law of nature, where all creatures are either male or female, is just being disdained and perverted uh, to the harm of those who do that. Uh, murders, thefts, slander, violent talk has increased so greatly. And then the rate of inflation has increased far beyond uh, what's announced by the government. And so in such unstable and threatening times, what can we do to protect our families and ourselves? Should we move to the country? Should we grow our own food? Well, some people are actually doing that. But I believe above all things, we should be focused on actually growing in love so that our love for God becomes blazing hot and our love for people becomes God's own love fleshed out in our lives. And that will enable us to endure, to stand firm to the end of the age and the return of Christ. I want to literally become love. Now, once I was going through a great slander attack and many were speaking against me. And so I would go to the church early to pray through the crisis and I would <clears throat> read the Bible and pray. So I found Psalms 31 verse 20 one morning and it says, you hide them in the secret place of your presence from the conspiracies of mankind. You keep them secretly in a shelter from the strife of tongues. And I cried out, oh God, that's what I need. Hide me in your secret place from the strife of tongues. <laughs> and God spoke to me and said, I will if you'll stay out of it. Now, that's just such a word for the time we live in. So many people don't stay out of the strife of tongues. They jump right in it and get defiled by it. But the love of God, when it's in our hearts and our lives, we don't want to be involved in the strife of tongues. Uh, and so then we are hidden. As we stay out of that, we're hidden by the hand of God in God's secret shelter. Now, love is, is the most versatile of all virtues, and no one sermon could describe the complete versatility of God's love, uh, but I want to give you a strong beginning, uh, at least, of that description, so that above all things, you'll choose love, and you'll pray for love, and you'll practice love. And for those who do so, this wild and crazy, lawless, dangerous, deceptive, and polluted end times will become times of awesome opportunity and overcoming victory that will bring massive glory to God by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, my first point 
is love finds a way when there seems to be no way. Back in the 1970s, I was uh, the first bus captain for Goshen Assembly of God. And a bus captain just goes out, signs up kids to ride a bus, then with a driver goes around, picks them up, gets them in to church and takes them home safely. And God had given me a revelation that children are the good ground of Matthew 13 from that parable, you know, the uh, the good the, when the seed got on the good ground, it, it produced a crop. The Lord showed me that little children are, are like that. They don't have to be plowed with the plow of repentance. They just so readily accept Jesus. But there's a time frame. If you don't get them, you know, when they're young and teach them about Jesus, they'll get hard. The weeds will grow in their life. They won't be good ground for very long. So I was filled with God's love and compassion for children. And uh, now there were many, many obstacles to to getting the kids in. And God would impress my spirit and mind that love finds a way. So whenever I'd run into these obstacles, I would pray for more love, assuming that if I got the love, I'd find the way to do it. And so many times there was no money for a, for a bus, and I'd want to expand and bring in more kids. So uh, God would show me some way. One time, uh, I started a bus route with a van, and uh, I took a picture of 33 children standing with me before a Dodge Maxi van. Now, that's we'd probably be arrested if we had that many kids in a van back in these days. But anyway, I used that picture to show that we desperately needed a bus, and I sold it in frames and called it shares in the bus route. I sold enough of those shares that we were able to buy a bus. And uh, now Goshen, Oregon, is five miles south of both Eugene and Springfield, and I had a desire to get all the kids that weren't going to church anywhere in that whole metro area signed up. And eventually we did uh, sign up and visit up to 1,200 children a week and bring in over 500 per Sunday every Sunday for the last three years I was there. But you see, it was a, uh, it just looked impossible to sign up kids all over the metro area of both Eugene and Springfield and get them out to Goshen, Oregon on time because if they came in a half hour late, they'd dis- disrupt the classes. And so the Lord kept showing me ways. As I prayed for more love, I dev- uh, the love, would, love of God would show me a way to do it. So instead of just going around knocking all on the doors, waiting Sunday morning, you know, to see who would come to the door and who might get on the bus— we got all the bus captains to make phoning lists, and we'd call those homes, and the ones that didn't answer their phone, we'd cross off the list. We had it in a driving order, so we didn't waste any time waiting on a doorstep there where, where no one was going to come. And then we also developed a system where I'd put one bus in an area of about 5,000 people, and it would work a pattern through that, but we could sign up kids on any street or alley, and then we had a private car, sometimes up to two cars with, with a bus, but usually just one. And that car would go the, on the out-of-the-way places, load up with kids and intercept the bus and unload them. And the car and the bus uh, both had or the private van or whatever we used. Uh, they both had CB radios in them, and they could communicate. So the, the more love I've got, I just kept finding ways to overcome all the different obstacles. Now, that's just a great, uh, I don't want to lose that. And I think sometimes we can 
we can drift away from that to where we begin to look at the impossibilities of this world and just think, well, it's impossible. I can't do that. Uh, there's no way. But if we would just say, you know what? I bet if I got filled with the love of God, that love would find a way. And I really believe that's true. Uh, so what a wonderful aspect of this virtue of love, that it can overcome obstacles, find a way where there seems to be no way. Now, Paul wrote it this way. He said, love believes all things, 1 Corinthians 13, 7. And love believes there's a way. Now, may the Lord fill us with love so that we don't stop at excuses as to why we can't do it or can't do what God's will is. May he fill us with so much love that we find a way. Now, my second point is love is the key to happiness or joy on earth. Joy is a little greater than happiness because it doesn't depend on uh, circumstances. Well, I dated a girl back in the high school when I went to high school and uh, led her to Christ. But I was one year older, and so when I went away to Bible college 1,300 miles away, by the, you know, a few months later, I got one of these uh, Dear West letters, <laughs> and uh, I just went down to the prayer room, and I grieved, and I wailed. I got noisier than most Pentecostals, and uh, I was just shaking the gates of heaven. But, you know, I grieved so hard, I felt my heart stop beating. It literally stopped for about six beats that just weren't there. I've, and, and I got quiet, waited to just drop over dead, and then it started beating again. And I said, whew, I don't love her that much. And then I got out of that prayer room. I thought, I am not going to grieve anymore. I almost killed myself doing that. So I thought to myself, what am I going to do to get my joy back? And I decided I'd buy a bicycle. And it was springtime. The blossoms were out. I thought, and I had hair in those days so on my head. <laughs> so I thought I'd ride the bicycle up and down the streets in the springtime. And I'd have joy and I'd forget the girl. Well, I bought the bike. I rode it that afternoon. I had a little bit of joy from it. Uh, but I didn't lock it up that night. Now, my friends told me, said, you better lock it up. And I said, it's God's bicycle. He'll watch over it. I was a country boy from South Dakota and didn't know any better. Well, he watched it all right. He watched somebody ride it down the alley, and that night uh, they stole my bicycle. So the next morning, my bike was gone. My joy was gone. Uh, so I thought, I'll buy another bicycle. I'll keep it locked up. Well, I did until one day I thought I'll only be in this store a minute and then when I came out, of course, the bike was gone, and uh, I didn't lock it up, you see. So then I thought to myself, well, I'm determined to be joyful. I'm going to buy something to give me joy that they can't steal. And I bought a YMCA membership, and I began to swim in the pool. So I had a measure of joy again. But lots of little kids swam in that pool, and I don't have to articulate too much what might happen when lots of little kids swim in the pool. I caught a terrible throat infection. And the doctor said, this is strep infection. If it gets in your heart, it'll kill you. Where do you think you got it? I said, well, I think I caught it uh, in the YMCA pool. And I heard him say, I forbid you to swim in the YMCA pool. Now, as I exited that office, I looked up to heaven and I said, Lord, I've been trying really hard to be happy down here, but I just don't see how it's possible. And God spoke to me that day and said, take your joy primarily from what you give, then you can never lose your joy. And then I just, he beamed understanding into me that everything I was doing for joy was 
a girlfriend for me, a bicycle for me, a bicycle for me, uh, a YMCA membership, uh, membership for me. Everything to give me joy was for me. And I realized he wanted me to turn my life around 180 80 degrees there and, uh, and say, who can I love? Who can I serve? Who can I bless? Who can I encourage? And so that's been my theme ever since. And I began to experiment with the finding joy by giving things to people and blessing people. And and uh, it just has literally become a joy factory. Now, the, it's love that gives. You know, the Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, the famous John 3.16 verse. But God so loved the world that he gave. And, and when we get that virtue of love in us, we love to give, and then we get a joy from it, and nobody can ever steal that joy. <laughs> Nothing can take that joy away. And so I believe that walking in love uh, is really the key to happiness and joy. Happiness doesn't come through having a bunch of possessions because somebody can steal them or, you know, things, things go wrong. But uh, when, you, when you give it away, uh, no one can ever touch that joy. So I really truly believe Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now, we want to be good receivers. Jesus didn't say take all your joy uh, from what you give. He said take your joy primarily from what you give. So I, I like to be a good uh, receiver and thank people and be gracious and, and grateful. But anyway, who can I love? Who can I serve? Who can I bless? Who can I encourage? That should be our theme if we want to be uh, just happy and joyful in life. Now, my third point is faith works by love. And Paul said that in Galatians 5, 6. Uh, faith worketh by love. A few years ago, I went to Uganda, and it's such a needy nation that I was just really impacted by the terrible poverty there. I'd go to bed about 10 p.m., sleep till midnight, wake up at, at 12 a.m. and pray for till you know, till we got up at five or six, I just pray for that terrible, needy nation. And one night after about five hours of prayer, the Lord gave me a revelation from the Spirit about how love and faith work together. Now, I knew that faith comes when God reveals his will. Whenever God reveals his will, he's literally serving you faith on a platter, and you still have to claim what he names I tell people, God names it and you claim it. You don't name it and claim it, leave God out of it. That's a faith, that's pride cross-dressing as faith. But anyway, the Lord showed me that if you had an empty pop bottle and you stood out in the rain trying to catch water to fill up that pop bottle, it would take a long time because of the little opening at the top. But if you put a funnel in that empty pot bottle and stood out in the rain, then that much bigger area, you know, the funnel would collect water from a much bigger area and the bottle would fill up fairly quickly. And so the Lord showed me that the love we have in our life is like a funnel that catches and perceives the revelation of God's will. It just, uh, it picks up on it. It collects it. And so... I decided, wow, I don't want a little funnel of love. I want a great big one because I'd like to just fill up with faith. 
And then I realized that we can invert our funnel and be what I call a mean old ornery Pentecostal boogerhead. <laughs> and that's when we are living in anger, living in bitterness, and our funnel is inverted. And then the opening is even smaller than what the pop bottle would have been, so to speak. And, and the revelation of God's will comes down, <clears throat> but it drains off because our funnel is upside down. So you see, love is a, is a real key to living a life of faith. You, you just can't live in anger and bitterness and selfishness and have great faith. It just, it is impossible. Now, Paul prayed this. He said, this is my prayer that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 through 11. Now that scriptural prayer would be a great one to pray regularly for yourself and for your loved ones and for anyone that you're trying to disciple and help grow in Christ. If our love abounds more and more, it's going to be in the knowledge of God's will that's going to fill us with faith. Now, my fourth point is that love is the key to good and lasting relationships. You might say, well, we, we know that. I suppose we all do, but we probably need a reminder. The love that the world has is so different than God's love. It's kind of like, I just love cheeseburgers. Well, that's the way a lot of people love someone else. In other words, the world's love is based on what that person can do for them. We love someone because of what they do for us, how they make us feel, etc. But God's love is illogical. It's unexplainable. It loves people in spite of themselves. And it always seeks to give, encourage, cover faults and transgressions. It seeks to forgive, edify, build up, and serve. Without the love of God... Lasting relationships are rare, and if they do last, they become more like an association, like demons work with different demons. The devil and his demons work together, but they don't love each other. They have kind of an association. They work together for the same cause, but they don't like each other at all. <laughs> and uh, so if we want real lasting relationships that are the real deal, we've got to let the love of God work in us. Now, Paul described this great versatility of, versatility of love. He said, love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It's not self-seeking. It's not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. So it does so many different things. And then Paul also wrote in Colossians chapter 3, bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Well, he forgets, you know, when he forgives. And so that's what we're supposed to do. Now, the Bible says in Proverbs ten twelve, hatred stirs up conflict, but love covers over all wrongs. And then the Bible says, Whoever would foster love covers over an offense, but whoever repeats the matter separates close friends. So love bears with people. It puts up with people. It's not easily angered. It, it uh, won't reach into what I call the slime bag of the past uh, to find something that you're supposed to have forgiven and forgotten, but then if you say, I didn't really forget it, I'm going to bring it out and 
and rub the past all over today. Now, the slime of, uh, of the past will ruin the beautiful picture of today. And then when the spark of the tongue hits it, uh, the slime of the past is actually an explosive. And you can not only ruin your today, but you can blow up all your tomorrows. So I tell myself, as the Holy Spirit has taught me, never reach into the slime bag of the past to pull something out and try to win an argument. I'm talking about love being the key to good and lasting relationships. If we don't forgive, if we don't forget, if we don't bear with one another in love, who are you going to be in love with? Are you going to find some perfect person? <laughs> I don't think you are. But love covers over all wrongs. And uh, it's not self-seeking, so it's not selfish. Well, now the Bible says in Peter, uh, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. People use up love like a family uses up groceries. Now, suppose we said to our family, I'm sorry, there's no more food to give you. You people ate it all up. You just ate it all up. There isn't any left. Well, our family would say, well, if we ate it all up, mom or dad, why didn't you go buy more? And in the same way, we, if we don't go to God's store and get our love renewed again and again, then people use up our love. And that's why the Bible says, you know, because of lawlessness increasing, wickedness increasing, the love of most will grow cold. Anybody's love will grow cold if you don't keep going back to God to renew it because we're not the source of this kind of love. We're channels for it. But God is the source of it. Paul wrote, love keeps no record of wrongs, 1 Corinthians 13, 5. So if you're keeping a record of wrongs, choose love and get rid of the slime bag of the past. Now, if you say, well, I, you know what? I really need to reach into the past there and get some of that slimy stuff that I was supposed to forget about and cover and forgive... Uh, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to win my argument. You know, when you approach an intersection, you may have the right-of-way, but if you see somebody coming fast through there, who, who wants to be dead right? And love helps us avoid being dead right. We can be right, but we can turn the other cheek. We can forgive when they're not asking forgiveness. And all those things that love does makes for true, lasting relationships. And without that, I just don't see how a lasting relationship could be a real, wonderful oneness. I think it would be more like the association the devils have when they work together. We should all ask God to help us practice these verses that I just quoted uh, so that we do bear with each other. We do cover transgressions. We keep our anger in check. We destroy record of wrongs. And, and that type of loving reaction can become habitual. It can become reflexive, become what we literally are. And only God's love can do that. Now, self-help and psychology are not powerful enough. It takes death to self. And selfish people refuse to die to self. But Jesus said, if you, you know, if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. But if you try to hang on to your old life, you'll lose it. And that's in uh, four different places in the Bible. My fifth point is that love is the key to spiritual gifts. And this is a saying that 
I, get, I believe God gave me this little saying, love always comes bearing a gift. See, love by its very nature always gives something. It's, it, it may not give a physical present wrapped up in paper and decorated with a ribbon, but when love comes around, it's going to give some service. It's going to give a hug or a kind word or a prayer, or some kind deed. It may give a spiritual gift. But love always comes bearing a gift. Now, back in 1991, I, I really failed to help a man. I was at the church playing basketball in the gymnasium late at night, and uh, at 11 o'clock, the doors shook, and a man cried out, Help me, Brother Wes, I've got a demon. Well, I brought him inside the gymnasium, and I said, Now, you're a Christian. Uh, a Christian can't have a demon. And the reasoning with that is that people think that if the Holy Spirit lives in a Christian, that a demon couldn't live in the same vessel. That's really an inadequate reasoning to say the least uh, because the Bible says Christians can turn away from the Lord. They can turn aside and follow the devil. So we, it's just not a good way of reasoning things out. That poor man, because I didn't help him, went home, ate his own excrement, and boiled his hands in water. And he was placed in an insane asylum and lost his marriage. Now, I was just brokenhearted over my lack of understanding and my lack of power. And I deeply repented, and I told God if he would give me an anointing for delivering people, that I would be faithful with it. Not too long after that, God answered that prayer as I was doing the laundry one day from trying to, God had told me a bunch of good things to do for my wife, and I was helping with the laundry when a fiery, tangible anointing came into my right hand and remained. And then it began to run up my arm, and then it went into my left hand. To my joy, I felt this fire run up my, uh, my left arm, and then it got into my feet, and I'd feel it. My feet were so hot, it felt like I could burn holes in the carpet. It would run up to my knees. Now, over the years, because that was clear back in July of 1991, I'll feel the fire of God flashing in my legs or in my chest, or I'll just be doing Bible devotions, and I'll feel just the fire of God burning in me. And when I minister to people, most often it will just come through my hands, occasionally through my feet. And I've had people healed through when I, uh, anointing would be burning in my foot. I'd put my foot on them and they'd get instantly healed as the power went out of me. But uh, you see, that anointing came to me after I, I was brokenhearted that I didn't help somebody and that they were so devastated because of my failure. Now, just, just this last Sunday, I was in a small church of 22 adults, but uh, quite a few people were healed. There was an elderly lady whose knees were really painful and bad, and uh, I put my hand on her knees, and she was just speaking in tongues and filled with the Holy Spirit, and the power of God was going into her. The pastor, pastor's wife had a real bad shoulder and could barely move one of her arms, and we prayed for her, and soon then she was able to move her arm all around. And another lady had came into the church using a cane to walk because of painful hip joints. And I had prayed that God would give her new hip joints from the, from the drawers of heaven where those uh, body parts are kept. And she just burst out and said, My mother had a near-death experience and saw in heaven these uh, drawers that were full of hearts and lungs and different body parts and everybody's always thought my mom was crazy and I never knowed what to think and 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 she was just thrilled well anyway she walked out holding her cane uh, which was just a, a blessing 
to see. Now, when God gave me the fiery, tangible anointing, you know, I went through an adjustment period. I got overboard on delivering, and I had to learn to major on revealing Christ, minor on exposing the devil, major on worship, minor on spiritual warfare. And another little law that I learned is what you want can have you, what you don't want can't keep you. Christians can sin. Christians can give place to the devil, like the Bible says. If you let the sun go down on your wrath, you'll give the devil a place or a foothold. They can yield different members of their body to evil, and some yield part of their lives to God. But the Bible says that a Christian can even turn aside and follow the devil. So when we don't have enough love, listen to me now, when we don't have enough love, we're content with powerless religion like the pharisees of jesus day they had rules taught by men but no power to deliver or heal in first corinthians chapter 12 paul discusses spiritual gifts and he gives three categories of power gifts power to tell power to know and power to do each of the three categories has three spiritual gifts so power to tell consists of the gift of prophecy messages in tongues, which is not devotional tongues, but comes down from heaven out to the people, and then the interpretation of tongues. Then power to know consists of the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, and the discerning of spirits. So you could tell what spirits in operation, human, angelic, demonic. And then power to do uh, is the gift of faith, gifts of healings, which is plural, and the gift of miracles. Paul concludes that chapter by saying, but earnestly desire the best gifts. I suppose the best gift would be the one that was needed uh, in whatever situation it might call for. And then Paul said, uh, earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And then he goes into the great love chapter of the Bible, probably the most sub sublime chapter in the Bible, the love chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Now, religion says, I will be, I'll be loving, so I don't need gifts of power. They've been done away with. Well, that's ignorance gone to seed. We need the gifts of the Holy Spirit in, in the end of the age more than than at the beginning of the church age. But love says, oh God, the people have such great needs. Anoint me as Jesus was anointed with power to heal and deliver. Anoint me with power to understand and know and anoint me with power to tell. I see when we're not praying that way, we should first pray for love because Love always comes bearing a gift. It is the key to spiritual gifts. When Jesus approached the tomb of Lazarus, the Bible says he wept. And the Jews said, see how he loved him. And then Jesus raised him from the dead. In another example, Jesus said, I have compassion on the multitude because they've now continued with me three days and have nothing to eat. I do not want to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. Compassion is, design, is defined as love using its power to help people. Now, compassion is so beautiful because it's love using its power. Love for people manifested the gift of miracles 
And that multitude of 4,000 men plus all the women and children were fed uh, with just seven loaves and a few little fish. This last Easter Sunday, I attended church with my wife, Bonnie, because I had an open date. I wasn't speaking anywhere. And in the hall of the church, there was a girl in a wheelchair. Her eyes were rolled up in her head. She looked, you know, badly damaged. And I inquired with her mother to see what her condition was. And I was told it was cerebral palsy. And they said that half of her brain had been destroyed. I uh, asked for her name so that I could be praying for her. I, the family didn't know me, so I, I didn't feel like I had the liberty to lay my hands on her head or pray anything. But I went into the church and, you know, I just wept and cried because here we were talking about the resurrection power that raised Jesus from the dead, but nobody was acting like that resurrection power could help that girl. Everybody was walking by her with, as if uh, nothing could be done. Well, I don't believe God wants us to just walk by the hard cases and act like nothing could be done. If, if the power of God can raise Jesus from the dead, then that resurrection power should be in us. A, a terribly hard case like that may take three spiritual gifts working together. It may take the gift of miracles, the gift of faith, and gifts of healing, which I, I've, been, I've read... Uh, different places, that that's what happens when people are raised from the dead, that those three gifts are operating together. My point is, uh, you know, we should let our heart be broken uh, for the needs of people. And then I believe we will be part of a great healing revival where God will use many Christians in powerful spiritual gifts and there will be two healing angels to help each one that has that gift. I do believe in heaven there is a warehouse of body parts, uh, new hearts, new lungs, new bones, new shoulder joints, etc., and that it probably includes new brains. <laughs> well, back in the May of 2022, uh, I think I already told you that, that I was praying for a lady to have new hip joints, and I asked God to take the new hip joints out of the drawers of heaven. And she started crying out about how her mother had seen those drawers in heaven when she had a near-death experience. And she was so excited because... And so I told her, I said, if, if you'll read the book by Anna Roundtree, she was shown that warehouse in heaven with the body parts. Richard Sigmund, in his book, My Time in Heaven, he was dead for eight hours and was sent back to describe what he saw. And he saw that warehouse in heaven with these body parts and was told that, 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 that those were unclaimed miracles. Well, God has a miracle in a drawer in heaven and he wants you to claim it. But more than that, he wants you to be so full of the love of God that you'll help others receive their miracles and then give God all the glory. Now, I'm praying for more love, see. I need to find a way where there seems to be no way I need to have more love that would come bearing more spiritual gifts. Let's pray that prayer together. Now, we won't pray it right this second, but let's make it a prayer of our life every day. My sixth point is that love makes everything more meaningful. King Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastics, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Well, 
he wrote from the perspective of someone trying to have eternal life on earth or under the sun, as he put it. In chapter 2, he explained all the things he did for himself. He said, I, took, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I amassed silver and gold for myself. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. And then he says, yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind, nothing was gained under the sun. But Jesus was the one that was greater than Solomon, and he said, if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you that person will certainly not lose their reward. So Solomon was doing everything for himself and found it all meaningless. Jesus said, even if you give a cup of cold water to one of these little disciples, you're never going to lose your reward. It, it, it's eterni eternally meaningful. Well, whatever we amass on earth will be left in behind, but what we give will be treasure in heaven. Now, even if we do the right things, we can let them become boring, so to speak, if they're not motivated from love. It could be done from a I have to do this rather than I want to do this attitude. So Paul wrote, if I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but have not love, I'm nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but have not love, I gain nothing. In other words, not even a martyr's death if... You were doing all that just out of duty and not out of love. It would not amount to anything. We can desire spiritual gifts for reasons other than the love of God and love for people because spiritual gifts could give us a sense of superiority or a thrill of adventure. The person used in a powerful gift could use his or her influence to manipulate other people and take advantage of them financially or in some other way. But most of all, ministry done without much love becomes boring. Back in 1970s, I was a bus captain. My driver and I were returning to church after we dropped a load of children back at their homes. And thoughts began to assail me. You're nothing. You aren't doing anything. Real spiritual people are filling great stadiums for Christ. Spiritual people are pulling cripples out of wheelchairs and healing them. All you do is go around and give your little bus flyers to little kids. And while I was considering this, another strong thought came to me, and this one was from the Holy Spirit, and it was, there's nothing more spiritual than love. Now, I was demonstrating love because I'd go find those kids. I'd go look for them. I'd get their parents' permission to bring them. I'd visit them every Saturday. I'd pick them up on Sunday. I'd lead songs and memory verses on the bus ride to make sure it was fun. I'd make sure each one got ushered across the street uh, if it was necessary. And, uh, you know, it just took a lot of love to do that. Well, I started that when I was 22. This is 50 years later. <laughs> and I've been doing a lot of divine healing services. But what I like best about the divine healing is the love that is shown to the people. I, I like to treat them and tell them they're my fellow ministers. I like to involve them. When I pray for somebody, I get others to, like if I pray for a woman, I'll get women to come up and lay their hand on, on, on the lady and pray with me. And if it's a man, we'll get the men to get involved. 
I teach him how to anoint people with oil and say, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, because we're putting the name on people via the oil, and it's the name that's so important. That name is greater than all their problems. I just really like the what I call a family time of love, where we love each other so much. Well, contract, uh, contacting prison chaplains, sending out e-packets with the e-book of 21 Ways to Forgive, finding donors, packaging books, taking them to the post office, recording the tracking numbers. It all just takes a lot of effort. And uh, one day I said, you know, I'm just tired of everything. Nothing felt very fun. And so I caught myself doing the right thing, but running low on the right motivation. So I immediately started asking God to replenish my love for people because I never want to minister out of duty only. If life becomes monotonous, a boring routine, or even meaningless, well, it means that our love needs to be refreshed. And that's not a bad thing because we're not the source of love. We're channels and so if you feel yourself running low on love, just admit, Lord, you're the source. Pour your love into me and through me. I need your love. He likes a prayer like that, and he'll respond. When we do whatever we do from the motivation of love for God and love for people, it is all meaningful. God's love will direct us to rest sometimes, like in Psalms 23. He makes me lie down in green pastures. <laughs> He leads me beside still waters, Psalms 23. When I ran that big bus ministry back in the 1970s, I'd sometimes notice a lack of divine motivation. So I'd say, Lord, I don't feel like doing the bus route today because you'd have to visit 10 hours or one hour for every 10 kids that rode the bus. So if you wanted 50, you'd have to visit five hours on Saturday. If you wanted 60, you'd have to visit six hours. And sometimes I'd just say, Lord, I just don't feel like doing it. But I'd always say, what do you feel like? He always felt like doing the bus route. So then I'd say, well, Lord, let me feel what you feel. Now, that is a great prayer to pray all these many years later. Because, you see, what do you think he feels for widows or orphans or drug addicts or homeless or the people that are so gender confused or all the people shouting, the, they're going to burn down the country if they don't, if they can't abort their babies. What do you think he feels for all those people? Well, we should say, Lord, let, let us feel what you feel because he has love and compassion for them all. But you see, when you pray, let me feel what you feel, that is a dangerous prayer to the old self because it leads to the death of self. If you're going to feel what God feels, your selfishness will die. So bring your old self to the fire of God's love and let it be consumed and you will become a flame of divine love that will not grow cold in spite of the lawlessness and wickedness of the culture. My seventh point, love is the key to maturity. Jesus said, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. To the one who strikes you on one cheek, offer the other also. And from one who takes away your cloak, do not 
withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and from the one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. Listen now, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your Father is merciful. Luke chapter 6. So that sons of the Most High means full-grown children of God. And how do you get full-grown in God? Well, you'd have to walk in love like Jesus described. So the destiny of the way of love, the end of the path, is full conformity to the image of Jesus. It's the way to become a full-grown, mature child of God. Paul wrote, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Speaking the truth in love will grow up in every way into him who is the head. My eighth point, love keeps it real. It is the key to avoiding hypocrisy. Paul wrote, love rejoices with the truth. So love recognizes truth and rejoices. But when there are double standards, one standard for me, which is an easy one, and a hard standard for you and everybody else, a difficult one, uh, love doesn't rejoice that love sets off spiritual alarms. Love practices what it preaches. And if we love God, we will love God's corrections. We'll seek them out. And when we are corrected with a better way to think or a better way to speak or a better way to feel or a better way to behave, we rejoice in those truths. Love rejoices with the truth. Hypocrites, on the other hand, have all kinds of blind spots and they have ways of ignoring truth, rejecting truth, questioning truth, even abhorring and hating truth. The Pharisees who opposed Jesus, you know, were just loveless religious beasts. And one of them said, there are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days to be healed and not on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, hypocrites. <laughs> Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead him away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whose Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? She was bent over double. Jesus commanded the spirit of infirmity to leave her, and then he laid his hands on her, and she straightened up and was healed. But it was on the Sabbath. Notice how the love in Jesus just blasted hypocrisy. And the love of God will devour hypocrisy out of us if we'll allow it. If we truly walk in love, hypocrisy will be banished from our lives. My ninth point, I usually have seven, but I have more this time. Uh, seeking, searching love is perhaps the most rare and beautiful virtue. Jesus said, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost, Luke 19.10. And this searching love goes looking for lost sheep or lost people. This virtue is desperately needed in American churches. I always think, if I attended this church, I'd go throughout this community. I'd look for lost sheep. I'd invite them to church. I'd look for needs that could be met and seek to help them in their hour of greatest need when they're most receptive. 
But few Christians go looking for lost sheep, meaning lost people. Why? Are they afraid? Are they convinced they have no responsibility to do that? Are they apathetic and don't care? Do they live in a false sense of inadequacy? Have they been intimidated by Satan himself so that they will only keep their faith a secret, uh, only to be shared with a few friends? Well, would you expect some stranger to knock on your door on Thanksgiving Day and say, hey, I'd like to come into your house and spend Thanksgiving Day with your family. May I come in? Now, that's not going to happen. Yet most churches act like it's the sinner's responsibility to come knock on their door. See, every day we have church, it's a Thanksgiving celebration. And we're having Thanksgiving with our family. And so for a sinner to come and knock on the door, may I come in and celebrate Christ with you? It'd it'd be just as hard for them to do that as if they came to your house and wanted to spend Thanksgiving with you uninvited. It's so simple. If you want them to come, you've got to invite them. Now, why don't we have enough love to do that? Why do most churches remain small? And I love small churches. I minister most of the time in small churches. But God is not pleased if they remain small year after year after year. And I think probably the main reason is is that they just, uh, for some reason, don't have seeking, searching love where they go out looking for people to invite or looking for needs to meet. And the church ends up being a little fort where we have our little uh, Thanksgiving services. Well, it could be a different story if we'd pray and get filled with the seeking, searching love of God. Number 10, love qualifies a person for prayer bonuses. When we pray in love for other people, God adds things to us that we didn't even ask for. King Solomon offered a thousand burnt offerings on the bronze altar at Gibeon, uh, and God appeared to him in a dream by night and said, ask what I shall give you. Ask anything and I'll give it to you. And so he asked for a wise and discerning heart so he could minister, administer justice for the sake of others. And God was so pleased with that that he said, I'm going to give you a wise and discerning heart to, uh, and a discerning mind so that you know there will never be anyone like you before or after you. But I'm going to give you what you didn't ask for, both riches and honor, so that no other king will compare with you all your days. And if you walk in my ways and keep my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I'll lengthen your days. So Solomon got a a bunch of bonuses, riches and honor, and uh, he hadn't even asked for them. Now, Jesus said, first seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Things like what shall we eat, what shall we drink, what shall we wear, Matthew 6, 33. <clears throat> and that applies even in times of great and massive inflation. I, I read where in New England, uh, electricity rates are going up maybe up to 25%. Uh, I read where fuel by August uh, is expected everywhere to be over $6 a gallon. What do we do in times of terrible inflation? Well, go right back to this verse. First, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And God will add these things. I lived through the high inflation period that occurred under President Jimmy Carter, and it was no problem for God. I remember when we were trying to sell our house so we could move and start a new church, interest rates were 21.5%. There were thousands of houses on the market, but we prayed. God sent us a buyer who was a GI 
he could still get a 6% interest rate loan, but uh, it was going to jump up to 8% in a, in a couple of days. So he bought the house quick, paid full price, and uh, even found a dry rot under the kitchen sink, but didn't turn it into the inspectors and said, I want the loan to go through. I'll fix it myself. And we cashed out. We were, had enough equity to assume a loan in that new city at 7.5% interest. Remember, interest rates were about 21%. And so God made it all work out. Now remember Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Don't be selfish in your prayers. Pray for other people. God will add to you prayer bonuses and then all things are going to work together for your good if you'll love God. My last point is that love has the greatest courage. Now, see, I didn't talk about love as the key to teamwork or love is stormproof. Uh, I don't think there might not be any end to the points that we could make of the versatility of God's love. But here's the last point I'm making today. Love has the greatest courage. I remember reading this story of Richard Wormbrand, who is a Lutheran pastor, and he wrote the book, Tortured for Christ. Back when communism came to Romania, uh, he was a Lutheran pastor by that time, and him and his wife were in a meeting of preachers who were listening to the communist government official. And one after another, these preachers were getting up and declaring that Christianity and communism were symbiotic, or in other words, they could work fine together. And Sabrina elbowed him real hard and said, Richard, get up and remove this spittle from the face of Christ. And he whispered, if I do, you'll lose your husband. She said, I do not wish a coward for a husband. And so he stood and walked up, and everyone was expecting him to say the same thing, but he began to exalt Christ. He said that Christianity was incompatible with godless atheism. He began to laud the name of Jesus Christ as the Lord of Lords and King of Kings, and that there was no equal. And as he spoke, the pastor stood and applauded, and then he slipped out the back door. Now, they did find him and arrest him, and he spent many years in prison. I believe it was 14 years and six of those years were in solitary confinement, which is a great torture. And I believe he spent two of those years in the dying room where they put uh, people, he had tuberculosis, uh, caught it in prison, but was miraculously healed. No one ever got out of the dying room except Richard Wormbrand. And he, they, he, Sabrina was arrested, sent to a concentration camp where she had to eat grass and rats to survive. But they... They got out of all that. They formed Jesus to the Communist World, uh, which is now Voice of the Martyrs Ministry. They lived to be nearly 100 years old, each of them, and uh, they saw the downfall of communism in Romania. Now, the early disciples loved God so that they boldly declared that Jesus had risen from the dead right to the very people who had who had arranged for him to be crucified. We must have this bold love for God as the age comes to an end, even if it causes us to suffer persecution for the name of Jesus. Now, here's my final line, my final saying to you. I believe love is what we need the most, God's love. Sure, it's a time of craziness, wickedness, lawlessness. The love of most will grow cold. 
So that's what we need the most, is for God to renew our love. Let us then pray for that love and uh, pray that that love will abound more and more in our lives so that we think love, speak love, practice love, and by God's grace, become love. Lord, would you do that for us, for your glory? That's our prayer. Let's say his name together. In Jesus' name, I love you. God bless you. If you would like to partner with us at Encouragement Expert, please email us at pastorbacker at gmail.com. Or you can write P.O. Box 485, Cresswell, Oregon, 97426.